0: Hello everyone, my name is Philippe, and this is the podcast, Life with AI. The podcast that we talk about artificial intelligence in a simpler way. And for today's episode, I'm here with Joe, and we're gonna talk about bias and ethics in the data sets and algorithms that we have in machine learning and deep learning. So first of all, Joe, thanks for, for coming here. And can you present a little bit yourself and also the company that you work at, it's Twenty Twenty AI, and also say the right way to pronounce it, of course. Sure, thanks so much for having me on. So the company
1: that I work for is called Twine. And part of what we do is build vision and speech data sets for clients by harnessing our global community of around half a million freelancers. And that particular service is called Twine AI, which is one of the the sub brands within Twine. So we've been going for just shy of seven years and we began as a creative community where freelancers could showcase their work and we had a whole series of extra bits of functionality that you could upgrade to pro to receive and that's something that we still have and have built upon but through speaking with members of our community it became clear to us that there were issues in the freelance marketplace sector that needed to be addressed, specifically around this race to the bottom on prices that had come about from the early players in the scene like Upwork and Fiverr and those sorts of companies where they'd leveraged cheaper wage rates in countries like Bangladesh and Pakistan to really enable companies to hire a lot of freelancers cheaply and produce a large volume of work, but it really priced out freelancers who lived in more expensive cities or freelancers who were more mid-tier to senior level, for whom the prices they were being presented with weren't feasible for the skill level and the work that they were taking on. So off the back of that, we grew really quickly and evolved into being a marketplace where we vet both sides of that marketplace. So we have vetting on the client side for the jobs that get posted. And we also have vetting for the freelancers to ensure that there's maximum relevancy between the client and the freelancer. And then about three or four years ago, we started to get messages from AI companies who noticed that we had quite a large community of actors and other creatives on the platform and reached out to us saying, could we help them to build ethical speech and vision data sets? Because they were wanting to focus on particular demographics, and were wanting to also have complete control over the creation of that data. So we began working with a company in the US that we still work with, creating a data set that is open source, and will really help to enable researchers in the future to take advantage of this data, to ensure that they have high quality ethical data that they can work with and can really zero in on particular demographics. So although we still have the side of Twine where we help companies grow by connecting them with freelancers so they can scale their content, we also have this side of Twine that's grown a lot and is a considerable focus for us now around helping ai companies to hire our freelancers to m- make data sets that require both skilled and unskilled work to help them train their models and that's the story
0: nice and well uh, as you guys know there are a lot of problems in the construction of data sets related to bias and ethics and we're going to talk a lot about it and I, I will have some hard questions for you, Joe, regarding how do you guys manage to issue this bias in the creation of your data sets? And maybe to start this conversation, uh, I, I will, we, we can talk about the bias first and then the ethical questions that later. And to start about the bias uh, in the data sets, maybe we could start about images, that is the most simple case of, of biases. And as you work with videos, videos is like the biases of images Plus some other biases that become really harder to deal with the creation of the data sets. So let's start about images. On images, we say we know that we have an age problem, a gender problem, and a skin color problem. So when you are creating your dataset, like a facial recognition system, if you have only men and not women, your system will, not, uh, will basically fail when we have women uh, using your, your system. And also the same thing for black people and white people. Uh, we know that in the past we had a lot of data sets that didn't have black people, and then the systems didn't work for black people. And these problems are basically solved uh, right now. But we have some other problems that are in the video because we have all these image problems, but we have people doing actions. So imagine when that we have a women cooking and men working on the, I don't know, factory. So if we have a a lot of videos of women cooking and men working, even having 50% of videos of women and 50% videos of men, this data set is also biased. So Joe, I, I would like to know how you guys deal with this problem of bias while you're creating your data sets.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So Twine, as well as focusing on ensuring that freelancers can have work that doesn't discriminate against their their skill sets and their location. We've also focused a lot on ensuring that freelancers don't get discriminated against if they're a member of an underrepresented group or if the client has particular biases in their hiring processes. So within Twine, we enable clients to post up jobs anonymously. And then also we have the means for freelancers to specify in their portfolio if they are a member of an underrepresented group. And then we allow companies when they're posting jobs to state if they want to connect with a diverse group of freelancers on their project. And the main focus there is on helping companies get out of this bias issue where if they post on LinkedIn, for example, and say, I need someone, then their LinkedIn audience will likely be people of the same demographics as them. And so the perspectives they're bringing into their business are not widening as a result of that process. So our hiring processes enable them to ensure that they are widening the perspectives coming into their organizations. And we've seen the companies that we've worked with see big benefits from that. Now on the AI side, the way that we help clients is by fully project managing the data set collection process. So we work closely with them from the get-go to ensure that the processes zero in on particular demographics. If that's what the client has mentioned to us, they need to help them be more diverse or if they're just wanting a wide pool of participants then we help them to ensure that the data is as diverse as possible through our data sourcing methods of who we actually reach out to and how we use the wide range of different types of metadata that we have in our system. But also we keep tabs on it all the time and have project managers who are looking at the data in a hands-on way and are ensuring that the the data is just not coming from one central demographic.
0: So so basically you have a person taking care of it all. So you have a a non-biased data set. So that's the best way to get ultimate control over the
1: data sourcing. But I would say it's also just the community we've built is very diverse. We're, We're in over 190 countries. We have freelancers from all backgrounds and all different cultures and ethnicities, but also the hiring processes we have in the platform mean that freelancers who've been worried on other platforms about being discriminated against feel more comfortable on our platform. So I think that naturally makes the community more diverse as well.
0: Yeah, and this is really important for creating those data sets because we have a lot of issues today with machine learning. And we will talk later about text data that for me is the worst problem that we have today. And well, being able to create those data sets with a diversity, with diverse people it's, it's really important and it's really nice what you guys are doing. And well, if we can enter a little bit into the machine learning and deep learning side, well, uh, we have these self-supervised techniques nowadays that basically you can take uh, for, for video, for instance. You can take a bunch of videos without labels and you can uh, train a neural network to predict a task that doesn't need a label. So for instance, you have a, a next frame prediction on video So you will uh, train a neural network to predict the next frame. So to predict the next frame, the neural network will need to understand every single part of the relationship between the people in the image and so on. And I see a big problem when we don't have a diverse data set. And especially uh, about the example that I said that women cooking and men working, that if we use a self-supervised we are not saying that there is a man in this video. We are not saying that there is a woman a woman in this video. But the algorithm will understand to predict the next frame of this video that women cook and men work on the factory, for instance. So this is really interesting to have people working on this side to create a better data set so us machine learning people can train better models and more non-biased and ethical models. This is really nice.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about having members of the Twine team who focus day in, day out on helping clients build diverse data sets is that they get these really finely tuned skill sets around building diverse data, which we haven't seen happen elsewhere. And it's something we've taken really seriously in developing those skill sets. And then I think what's interesting as well about what you mentioned there around the assumptions uh, around, in that case, gender roles, we take a lot of time in the initial stages to communicate with our clients about potential issues of just bias in the actual approach to the project on, the, on a fundamental basis. And then from there, what we try to do is see where we can make suggestions to encourage them to make their data more diverse and question those assumptions. That also ties into our company culture within Twine where we are a diverse team, relatively diverse team. We could always do better, but we are, I would say, pretty diverse anyway, which is great. And also our culture helps to support those values. So it's something that we live day by day and we have people in the team who have special, specialized skills within the hiring processes normally for companies and specifically within AI as well. So I think it has to be a completely vertically integrated thing to really work. And that's what we, we bring to the equation is top down, we are focusing on that issue. And that's what I think has helped us be successful.
0: Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense because you cannot build a diverse product while you are not a diversity company, that, that's nice. Exactly, yeah. And, and now maybe we can talk about, uh, about another problem of, of machine learning that is audio. And in audio, we have some, well, we have the same problems, like we have the gender and the age one. We don't have uh, the skin color, but it's something really interesting that we have algorithms that are able to predict our skin color based in the way you speak. So this this discussion of bias in data sets in audio, because in video you have uh, the skin color of the person in the video, but in audio, how do you manage to to address this bias? while it's only the voice of the person, but if you like, you have the accent in the audio data set. If you are doing a text to speech algorithm and you only put the people that speak uh, like the right English from UK, this text to speech will not work for me that I'm Brazilian, then I don't have the best accent. So how do you address this problem of audio, especially on the accent problem, and also the diversity of, uh, well, even not seeing the person, the algorithm is able to discriminate based on a lot of things that, uh, well, it doesn't have uh, the information.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a number of ways that we've found effectively work for that. One is that all of our freelancers have audiovisual portfolios where they showcase their work. And so typically for the freelancers that are contributing to projects, not always, but typically they will have examples where their voice and there are videos of them actually in their Portfolio so they can have either audio recordings if let's say they do voiceover work or they're just talking through a project they've done that's a client case study. We can, you know, listen to those examples and then use that as a basis. But outside of that, it's really about actually communicating directly with our participants. So we do a lot of work to vet the participants coming onto the project to make sure that they have the diversity that we need. And like you said, it's not just people who speak the native um, accent and language style for that that country. We make sure that we are widening the participation in the project. And that's something also we've been working on with our content. So we've been publishing a lot of articles on our blog recently around data sets for specific languages. And within that, we've been really looking at dialects and the existing off the shelf data sets that really successfully cover dialects uh, uh, across the board. So yeah, it's something that again, is just built into our processes and really it's our vetting that means that we can facilitate this, but also, Just having very frank discussions with our clients around what they will really need, because it's not just about saying I need U.S. English participants, for example. It's about understanding what is this model really going to be interpreting and what speech rhythms and dialect patterns do you really need to be feeding in that you don't already have? It's asking those key questions and then building the process around them. So we don't have a sort of plug and play off the shelf system. And that flexibility allows us to then use our vetting processes to assemble a really high quality, diverse data set for that client, specifically for them.
0: I see. So so based on their problem, you will create a data set. Because, well, I I am a really enthusiast of, of machine learning. And for me, I would love to have... a big model that is able to solve for every person in the world so for every english speaker a chinese one a brazilian one an american one uh a french one this model would be able to work so you don't really work for create the best uh, always data set but you work to create the best data set for the problem of your clients right
1: that's a really good point so actually it depends some it- The answer is yes, but we do have some clients who come to us and say, we want the best data set in this area and we will do that for them. But it is always about solving the particular challenge for that client. So we are client focused, but there are projects that we focus on where the client specific needs are around building the best data set possible. But I would say overall, The way that we achieve the quality and diversity of data set is going back to what I said before, it's the vertical integration of everything we do. So we have technical people that we bring onto the calls with clients and they're there to provide that consultative aspect. But we also have people who have now developed specific skills around building diverse data. And they're not technical people so much, they're project managers essentially, but they have finely tuned skills around project management for building diverse data sets for AI clients. So it's the collaboration between the, those two sides, the technical and non-technical, focusing specifically on diversity that achieves the results.
0: I see. And well, before passing to the ethical question, I would just like to to say a uh, last word about uh, this training of uh, algorithms and a problem that uh, we didn't talk about here is the fine-tuning. Well, you have a huge data set like ImageNet and Google going to train their best model ever using GPUs. You're going to take this model, fine-tune to your problem and then just use it. You need to know that also the biases of the first data set are going to be included in your model that you are using for your specific problem and you don't have any control about it. So maybe if we are creating this new data set at Wine is trying to, to create here, and maybe I hope that at least some of them will be will be public for us to use because you are creating very good uh, data sets. But guys, it's really important to have these non-biased data sets because maybe we are using an algorithm to our non-biased data set, but the previous data set that this algorithm was trained is biased. So this is a question. Th- this is a problem that we, we are talking here that is really important, and we don't really know how it can influences our results, even if we are not using a biased data set. So thanks a lot for like addressing this problem because we really need better quality data sets. And there is a, a sentence in machine learning that is garbage in, garbage out. So if you put garbage data, you're going to have a garbage model. So, well, this is the last thing that I would have to say about biases. And maybe we can go to the ethical questions right now.
1: Sure. Yeah, I just have a... Final point there, which I think is interesting, which is that there's been a focus in AI on the quantitative bias issues. So essentially how the algorithm that is being either created or has been created to interpret the data can have errors or or issues in, in the analysis. But my specific background has looked at qualitative issues of bias within the creative sphere. So my PhD was on the psychology of how creative people collaborate with each other. And it was specifically looking at how musicians look at scores or even objects that are in their environment when they are collaborating with each other. And then also their thoughts about the musicians that they are engaging with, and then how that impacts on the music that gets created but also how it impacts on the presentation of concerts performance material any material that's around the actual artistic artifact and that led me down this interesting avenue of of qualitative bias which I think is a big issue in AI that doesn't get spoken about so the particular qualitative bias issues of how engineers think compared to how non-engineers think. And the fact that there will be many different stakeholders in projects. And we see this all the time with our clients. There are these qualitative bias issues that don't get spoken about, but are there in the air. And we try and really, I suppose, tangibly bring them into frame so that we can help clients to be aware of them and then manage them effectively. But part of my PhD research was looking at the brain layers these qualitative bias issues into sort of different strata. So you have this strata that is the immediate environment that you're in and how that's impacting you. So the space you're in, the objects in that space, the, how people's body language in that space affects you. Then the layer above that, you have this conceptual layer where it it's more about the actual blending of ideas of the people in the room and how that's being held in your mind. And then there's another layer above that, which is the impact of those ideas that you're discussing upon society or other projects or other things in your life. And so those three layers are always going on and they have an effect on qualitative bias on the approach to data sets, but they don't really get spoken about because there's always such a focus on quantitative bias and the actual code itself. But I think the people involved and how they end up approaching both the creation of models and the data is just as important. And it's something that I think needs more research into as well.
0: That's nice. And honestly, I have never thought about it before. So yeah, it's true that uh, we we have so many problems about quantitative bias that I, I never thought about the qualitative bias while creating those stuff and the people that are creating the algorithms that are engineering them. So that's nice to, to think about you. So the problem is even bigger. <laughs> <laughs> yes, essentially. Well, now we can talk about some ethical questions and here's going to be nice. So first, let's talk about the text problem, the text algorithms that we have because the data sets that we have is basically the internet and the internet is all our bias. We are the internet, we produce the content in the internet, and the algorithm is going to learn from us. So do we really want that the algorithms be like us? Because if you think about our society, maybe it's not that good. And if we want an algorithm to be perfect, imagine that we have the perfect algorithm that acts like a human. Would this algorithm be good? Do we want an algorithm like this? So I would like to, to know your opinion, Joe, about this. Do, do you think that the, uh, for the text, a text algorithm, like a text uh, an algorithm that is able to interact with people like a human, do you think that uh, this algorithm should be like us? It's
1: a really great question and a challenging one. So going back to what I was saying before about my background, I have a, I suppose, strange approach to this because part of my PhD was also looking at the same issue regarding musical notation because there have been certain projects undertaken to i suppose address this problem of you know there's been algorithmically led projects to create um, improvising ai musicians and the way they think is again using western systems of harmony melody rhythm etc and then there are loads of questions there about is that us just being narrow-minded about the fact that there's only you know, the Western mode of thinking and then how do we address that with other cultures? I think the same thing applies with, with text because the, the issue with, if you try to build a persona around um, that the AI is trying to recreate this sort of um, this synthetic person in a sense that's being created, what mindset are they approaching the text with? In a way, that's more important than the analysis of the text itself. And this comes back to the qualitative bias issue, which I kind of think, like you were touching on before, is almost a bigger problem than the quantitative bias because text on its own doesn't mean anything or doesn't have any relevance to life if it's not wrapped in some contextual scenario that affects human life. And therefore, it's the cumulative result of someone's background, ideology, experiences, and so forth. And this is what my PhD was looking at on the impact of music. We assume that when we listen to music, that our way of thinking about it is the interpretation. And we're not thinking about the cumulative experiences across our lives that really provide that signature of our listening experience. And if you were gonna create an algorithm that's gonna interpret pieces of music, how would you really want it to think? Would you want it to think from a classical perspective, from a jazz perspective, from another culture's perspective? I think by trying to have a singular vision, you're really shutting out all the other voices. So I think we really need to explore the qualitative bias issue in, in more detail and really sort of look in the mirror first um, before we try and create these sort of
0: <laughs> uh, godlike text algorithmic yeah, because, so maybe this, this that you said is nice, because if we, instead of trying to create a God algorithm, we try to create a very good algorithm based on a prior, maybe it should be better, because we would still have a, more control over this algorithm. We want an algorithm to analyze music based on a classical perspective. We don't want a God algorithm that is able to analyze all music.
1: Yes. Exactly, so a really good example of that is African drumming. So there are some really interesting YouTube channels that have taken algorithms and tried to pass African drumming rhythms. And there's a really strange culture that's emerged out of that, which views African drumming as this kind of alien virtuosic musical language. And I find that strange because when I was at university, I was in an African drumming group and the guy who taught us uh, learned as a child in in Ghana, and what was really interesting was his whole approach to it was about feeling the rhythm. So I learned it, I suppose, from a more of a cultural feel point of view. I mean, I haven't been to Ghana, so in in that sense, I'm not trying to suggest that I therefore un- understand the culture, but I mean more that by trying to. Analyze it from a Western perspective and see that it falls outside the lines of our, our, you know, literally our bar lines, but also our cultural lines of what we expect music to be. It's very easy to look at it as an alien cultural item that is highly virtuosic because it falls out of our senses of of what rhythm should be. And I think text has exactly that same problem. And this is something that originally, I think Noam Chomsky did a brilliant job on in linguistics. And then there's been later work on looking at language in in tribes and the psychological approach to language there. Because if we, as you said, have this godlike view of the West defining how different cultures should be interpreted, then we'll have the same issue that we have in our history books of how the world operates because of the certain lenses that we've forced on historical events around the world and that's not a good thing
0: yeah it's true always a qualitative bias (laughs) exactly it's just there all around us and sometimes it
1: can be almost comically ironic how there's such a focus on the quantitative bias people go right sorted all that now there's not any qualitative bias because the quantitative side is sorted when that's just not the case at all that they can overlap but they're not um, equivalence, they are separate problems that need to be addressed.
0: Yeah, so maybe I will ask you a question now regarding quantitative and qualitative bias. This will be a hard one. So we have a, in a text scorer that's called Delphi. Delphi is an algorithm that given a text, it will give you a score. And they score about how bad or how good is this text. So basically a sentiment score, but it, instead of giving a sentiment, it gives you a toxic score. So, okay. This algorithm was trained based on Wikipedia and the the whole internet. So, if you give to this algorithm a sentence, "I killed Hitler." and if you give to this algorithm, "I killed Nelson Mandela. What do you think is the outcome? It's basically a score between zero and one saying the toxic of the sentence. One kill Hitler, one kill Nelson Mandela. So w- what's the re- the result of it? so it's it's scoring between zero and one saying how toxic is uh, the sentence.
1: Well, I would imagine it would be scoring it a one. For for both.
0: Yes. Yeah, but actually what, it, what we have is that killing Nelson Mandela, Nelson Mandela have a higher score, a much higher score than killing Hitler. And that's the same for a lot of other problems. So wow. if you take a basically different names of different countries, just putting the name instead of a sentence, you're going to have different toxic scores for different countries. Like if you put Afghanistan and uh, France, they have completely different scores. If you put uh, Islam religion and Catholic religion, the scores are completely different. And this algorithm was basically trained on the Wikipedia, and which is the internet. So it's basically our way of thinking. So do we want an algorithm to think like us? Because we think in this way, because it learned it from us and this is the result. So insiders, do we really think that killing doesn't matter who is the person is bad? Or killing Hitler is not that bad as killing Nelson Mandela? So I said this would be a hard question.
1: Yeah, this is, this is tricky. So this comes back to, I can't remember the name of this problem. You might be able to help me on this. Um, I think, isn't it P- Peter Singer? Is it the, the Chinese problem? Is that what it's called? Or the Chinese? I don't know. I don't know this Chinese problem. Um, so the, the problem, as I understand it, is that um, there's a man who walked past a box that has a like, slit in it. And if you input Chinese phrases, if you write down Chinese characters and then you put it in through the hole, then the perfectly translated phrase in English comes out through the box. So to the person outside the box, the box itself is fluent in Chinese, but actually the person inside the box has a book of all Chinese phrases and all English phrases, and then just matches the two and then outputs the correct phrase. So the person inside the box does not understand Chinese, but they're able to do that translation because they're following the instructions to produce the result. And so you've got that issue of AI just on I suppose simpler things like translation. But what about when you get onto things like you've just described there of political reaction, cultural reaction, things that are much more subtle and multi-layered and also more volatile. It's very, very tricky. And I don't think at this moment there's an answer to it because I think if you can't sort out that issue of separating understanding from literacy in, tr- in translation, then I don't think you can solve it on more complex issues yet. You need to take it one step at a time. So I think we're way off the point of being able to address those points until we can address the simple, more practicable examples.
0: Yeah, uh, that's nice. But uh, well, for, for the ways of training that we, we are having today with self-supervis- self-supervised, maybe we are achieving a better understanding of the language. Well, I I can explain really quickly how Delphi is training. You basically take a sentence and you mask some words of the sentence and you try to predict this word. You take two sentences and you gotta say if those sentences are correlated or not. Is the second sentence uh, after the first one, uh, do do they match or not? So we have this kind of learning that tries to introduce some understanding of the data set. until 2017, we had this really problem of uh, just matching, having big enough algorithms to match, but we still have this discussion. Is even training in a self-supervised way, is our algorithm just matching what it saw in the training data or it it learned something? But this is a good question, but uh, I I would have a, a specific question now. So do you think that the background of a person and the background of a country should be taken into consideration for future predictions, like the name of Hitler and the name of Nelson Mandela should be taken into consideration to analyze if killing is good or bad? I suppose it depends
1: on what the output of that algorithm is in the real world. So it's difficult to say without context, but I suppose the answer to that is yes, because awareness is always better than ignorance.
0: That's interesting, because for me, uh, the background shouldn't be taken into consideration. And this is a huge discussion, and that's why I like (laughs) the subject of of ethics and bias, because there is no right answer. answer. When you say
1: that it shouldn't, what about situations where it's important that it does get taken into account?
0: Like like what?
1: So, um, for example, in security situations it's important to if you take cctv as an example it's important to understand why somebody is in a certain location and who that person is and therefore what the likely danger would be of a particular scenario happening if that situation was to occur those contextual uh, bits of information matter and i don't think we could look at it and say, we we should be divorcing that from the situation because you can't integrate things.
0: Yeah, but this is basically the training. But now let's think another situation. Do you think that the color, skin color background should be taken into consideration into this? Do I think that
1: the skin color should be taken into? Yeah, because
0: if we take the statistics, we have more black people in prison than white people in the Brazil, in the US. Yeah. So if we train our algorithms with past scenes of CCTV cameras, of people committing this kind of acts, our algorithms going to be biased by the skin color. And how do we address this problem? You know, we need to take into consideration past acts, but how can we not have the skin color bias while having almost all the cases of black people because we have this statistical problem in our society?
1: Yeah, that's a great point. So we find with our clients that, again, this comes back to questioning the assumptions in the actual setup of the projects themselves, because sometimes the qualitative bias that researchers can have can just frame the entire way that they're approaching a project and without meaning to can lead to accidental discrimination. Because from, we found from an algorithm's perspective, you have to be You have to focus on equality of the actual um, interpretation of the data because you need to be covering as many different scenarios as you can, as equally as you can, because otherwise you're leaving vulnerabilities in the real world application of the algorithm. And it's very easy to be blinkered on, oh, that kind of demographic won't impact in the real world but you can't know that and i think that if these companies want to invest in data that will really last them and won't require constant expansions or, or tweaks then they need to be taking into account demographics that they that they have so on one side there's obviously me- the um, meritocratic element you know in in the platform entwine, we don't want people hiring a um a designer because they are from a certain background. we want it to be meritocratic, and that's the approach to inclusivity there but in AI obviously clients are looking for people from a certain background, so in that sense it's inherently not being inclusive in that specific project, but then again it's contextual, so questions have to be asked around. Why is there a focus on that particular demographic? What's the bigger picture of the sourcing of this data into what's happening with the algorithm? And if, if, it's, if we're finding that it's just leading to um, biased perspectives from the researchers coming out in the approach to the project, then we will help to encourage shifting the direction to be wider where we can. But again, it's come, there, there are always qualitative bias issues that we have to confront on projects and i think it's impossible to not have some at some point even um, however small they are and so we're always primed to be thinking about that and see our role as questioning that for our clients
0: yeah yeah this is so nice because there is no right answer there is no a unique answer you always need to take into account uh, the, the context and who is the client and, and everything. And, well, I, I try to make these questions because I like the God algorithms, the algorithms that are able to solve all the problems and work with different stuff. So that's why this kind of questions are interesting to me. Because if one day we're going to have these uh, so powerful algorithms to not be too biased, because, of course, there is a bias in all data sets. If you are t- even uh, the data set that Twine produce, they are biased. But they are less biased than the other data sets. it's It's impossible to not have a bias if you If I train an algorithm based on myself, it's my bias, and maybe it's not bad. It's just my bias and what I want to have so yeah hmm. that
1: that's so uh, something I just wanted to mention now I find really interesting. I've been reading up on algorithms that are used in animal farming, which I find really interesting because what happens there is that you get data sets being created and algorithms being designed that are essentially anthropomorphizing animals because if you take for example dairy cows the perspective is coming from human beings all the time and how do you actually internalize a cow's experience or any kind of animal's experience in the creation of algorithms and there's an even bigger issue of qualitative bias there because it's having to bridge different species so i find that a particularly interesting application of these issues and i don't know how specifically we can address that because we're always going to be anthropomorphizing animals after all we're yeah. the ones creating the algorithms yeah that's true
0: there are so many problems and, and it's so hard to solve them all there, there is no right answer for anything we need to work, work and research to have the best possible answer that we can achieve, but it's not going to be 100% right.
1: No, that's true. And also the other thing I think that gets forgotten a lot is the impact of money. So, for example, an algorithm that we use every day is the Google search engine. And there's an interesting conflict there around you know, text um, interpretation and Google's profit motive because I'm sure they are trying to provide the highest quality search results possible. But at the same time, there's a conflict of profit motive at the same time, their own ads, their own pages, relationships with other companies, the ideologies of, of their own team, political persuasions of their own team. And that's always going to undermine objective quality. And this is where there's this constant conflict that they're trying to navigate all the time of qualitative and, and quantitative bias.
0: Yeah, ev- everything is biased. The, the answer is this, everything is biased and we need to know how to address it. Exactly.
1: Yeah, We. I think the more important thing is we need to be aware of that. And that's the, yeah. first, the first step in being effective.
0: Yeah, that's true. And one thing that I try to, to do with my podcast is to show people that these algorithms are influencing their lives and also this the bias that those algorithms they have and how to, how to deal with it, how to interact with it. Because if you don't know that your life is being controlled by algorithms, they will do whatever they want with you. But if you know uh, and also know how do they work, you can maybe win this war against the, the algorithms. It's so true.
1: Yeah, knowledge, absolutely. But also yeah. I think it, awareness is so key in the data that we give over when we're online and i think it, it helps to understand the function of ai in society i mean one of the big things that we do at twine is help the participants in the dataset creation not feel intimidated by ai there's this general feeling i think in society that impacts us when we're sourcing on projects of people feeling like ai is this big brother monitoring your every action and that it's really just an excuse to have power over your life and what we're constantly communicating to the participants on projects is that they are helping making the world a better place because they are providing high quality diverse data that helps these companies to do good in the world rather than just scrape data online. And like you were saying earlier, bring that inherited data quality issue and bias into their work. These, pe- these participants are actively fighting that through the work they do, as well as earning a bit of money. They're actively making the world a better place. So they're not contributing to Big Brother. If anything, they are, yeah, doing a positive deed for the world.
0: Yeah, this is a good perspective to think about. Well, and, and it was a very nice conversation. Thanks a lot. And I always have a last question for for the for people who come. That is, Joe, if you have something to say to people about uh, no matter what, about AI, about data sets, about life, what would you say? So
1: I would say that the key power in life is awareness. And I think that having awareness of other people's perspectives, other animals' perspectives, and just really understanding for all sentient life their perspective on issues as much as you can and really developing as sophisticated an empathy as you can will really be the main superpower in your life. And if you can develop that, then it will help you be effective in your job, your impact on the world. And I think it will also make you a more effective and happy person. So that's the key thing that I try to develop with my team at Twine, but also my family, my friends, my community, and focus on in my own life.
0: That's nice. That, that's a nice message. I always like asking this question because I can learn from the deep inside of, of people. Awesome. It's
1: a great question. <laughs> <laughs> Challenging, yeah. but great.
0: Yeah. And you, you answered uh, fast because sometimes people like, take uh, some 30 seconds to answer them. So... It is tough. My brain was whirring fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So maybe we can finish by, well, you can say your, your social media that people can contact you and maybe something about Twine if you have open positions or I don't know.
1: Sure. Yeah. So you can find out about us at twine.net slash AI. We also have AI projects and are always looking for participants. So if you'd like to get involved, then please email me at joe at twine.net and I'll be happy to connect you with the members of the team who work on our AI data collection services. And also please go to our blog. So twine.net slash blog and go to the AI section and look at all of the different resources we have there. So we've got a really good AI project calculator where you can specify the amount of data you need and the location of those participants. And we have a calculator that has a fairly accurate predictor of what the cost of that project will be and timescales, et cetera. So I'd recommend that. But we also have all sorts of different resources like a massive list of high quality off the shelf data sets. And then also all sorts of articles on bias and ethics and data sets for all different kinds of specific languages so please check it out
0: yeah and of course i will put these links on the description of the episode so you guys don't you can check out just by clicking on the link and thanks a lot for the episode joe it was very nice uh guys don't forget to follow us on social media on linkedin we are life with ai and on instagram we are AI. and until next thursday goodbye